Good morning, everyone. Uh, and welcome to this session of the Conflict Prevention and Resolution Forum. I'm David Courtright from the Kroc Institute at the University of Notre Dame. And I'm welcoming you to this forum. It's actually the first time I've been at one of these monthly forums. Uh, but as you know, it's a, a great opportunity for uh, informal, off-the-record discussion of critical peace-building issues and conflict prevention challenges. Uh, and the forum has been underway for a long time, contributing to uh, this constructive debate. Uh, we're very grateful for today's session to uh, 3P, uh, Lisa Shirk and John Filson and the, the team that helped uh, put together today's program. And of course, our focus will be on Somalia, a country that's critically in need of peace building assistance that really has not had an effective government for more than 20 years and uh, major ongoing conflict, uh, which we'll be uh, discussing here today. Uh, what I want to do to start is uh, introduce Michaela Cesari from the Life and Peace Institute, which is really responsible for this program and the publication. He'll briefly explain uh, the origins of the project and the report, and then we'll each of us give brief uh, overviews of dimensions of the report, and then we'll have lots of time for discussion and interaction as a group. So, Michaela. Good morning, everyone. Um, yeah, on the origins of the publication, um, September, October, I think October of 2010, we got in touch with Professor John Paul Leather at the Kroc Institute. John Paul had an idea of providing the students with an opportunity to apply the research uh, to a concrete context and make it relevant here and now. And uh, it resonated with us because we had a need to engage researcher with a good theoretical background and a capacity to think freshly um, about policy options for engagement in Somalia. Um, because we also faced an environment where pretty much most agencies and policymakers were part of a mainstream um, of thinking. Um, so we developed a few questions, some 20, 25 questions, I think. Uh, they were floated with the students. They picked six. And we had over six months, I think, interaction mostly on Skype. Um, so the students with John Paul, and us in Nairobi, and sometimes also with our Somali partner, uh, which led to the articles that you see in this publication. And I think that the word fresh is very appropriate because we managed to come out with um, stuff that is a bit unusual uh, compared to what is published uh, these days on Somalia. And I'm very grateful to the Croc, John Paul, the students, and David also here for the uh, work that has been uh, produced. Great. So our panel, just to briefly introduce us uh, before we get started, um, to say I'll start off, Michaela will uh, follow up on some of the more recent perspectives of conditions on the ground in Somalia. Uh, then we will also hear from Shamsia Ramadan, who is the Program and Communications Advisor for LPI in Nairobi office. And Shamsia is also a graduate of the Kroc Institute, so it's sort of a conspiracy here. We're, uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, and then uh, Laura Weiss, who is uh, also from the Kroc Institute and the University of Notre Dame and is a, a PhD student uh, in history and peace studies. Uh, and uh, she's one of the contributing authors uh, to the report. Uh, but as I say, I'll start off and I'll, I'll try the impossible to sort of be a uh, substitute or representative for John Paul Litterach. Um And John Paul has written an extremely significant article for this collection uh, asking us to think about uh, what is the theory of change 
behind the different strategies that are represented in international approaches to Somalia, uh, which can be basically summarized as, uh, of course, isolation uh, versus engagement. Uh, and this isolation strategy, of course, is the official position of the U.S. and the international community. Uh, its most extreme form, of course, was articulated by President Bush. You know, we're, you're either with us or against us. Um, but what is the actual theory? How does this contribute to change? Uh, and we recognize that, in fact, uh, there are many flaws in this strategy uh, and uh, many aspects of an engagement perspective that rarely get uh, acknowledged. So John Paul has in the report uh, this, I think, important kind of conceptualization of the ways in which uh, communities uh, respond to either isolation or engagement and the dynamics that exist on the ground in conflict zones. Uh, the assumption behind the official strategies, it's, it's either black and white, with us or against us, but in reality, the world is filled with shades of gray, my favorite Billy Joel song. Um, uh, and it does indeed reflect uh, much of what goes on, uh, where people are buffeted, pressured, uh, pulled by many different forms of affiliation, uh, sources of identity, cross-cutting relations with family, uh, with clan, religion. Uh, these Associations and relationships are fluid, ephemeral. Uh, they're constantly shifting according to conditions on the ground. Uh, and this is the real world in which we all live, even in, in a highly structured society like the US, but certainly in conditions such as in Somalia and other conflict zones. Uh, and people will respond according to those pressures. Uh, and many people are in the middle uh, but uncertain about where to go. Uh, and it's, it's in that middle area uh, where the greatest attention needs to be focused. Uh, uh, Audrey Kurth Cronin has talked about that gray area as sort of the, the really the ground zero, the, the, the main focus of what the, where our attention should be. Uh, Lederach talks about it as the strategic contested territory where the focus of policy needs to be. And for that to occur, there has to be some form of engagement. Uh, one way of thinking about this is in terms of what the different stances are that people would adopt. Uh, there are those who are the perpetrators of violent attacks against innocent people, uh, others who are more active collaborators, others who maybe sympathize but don't directly engage but then don't uh, say anything against those actions, others whose uh, Support is coerced or pressured, intimidation. If you don't support us, we'll come back and kill you and your family. Um, and then there are others who are opponents. And people shift in these positions, in these identities over time, uh, depending on how they are approached by uh, external actors and by the parties on the ground. Uh, the RAND Corporation study from 08 is something that we often cite, and it's extremely significant in helping us to understand how terrorist groups actually end. Uh, in most cases, it's either through good old-fashioned law enforcement, effective policing, uh, but most often it's through a political process. There is some kind of power-sharing arrangement, some way in which the uh, extremists, the former militants, uh, make a decision to shift towards uh, some kind of a political process in order to achieve their objectives in a different way. 
And we know that all governments, democratic governments, have this sort of mantra, we don't negotiate with terrorists. But as Cronin points out, uh, at the end of the day, almost all governments do uh, engage in some kind of talks uh, because it's the necessary way to uh, try to bring these conflicts uh, to an end. Um, and part of the conceptual framework for us is to differentiate between insurgencies and terrorist groups. Uh, of course, they're interrelated. Insurgencies use terrorist acts. Uh, but the former is a much larger phenomenon. It has a large territorial social base, and it's a, a militarily significant phenomenon. Uh, terrorists are much smaller, uh, more isolated generally. Uh, terrorist groups often aspire to be insurgencies. Uh, but certainly in the case of Somalia, we're facing an insurgency, uh, a broad-based movement with substantial social support. It does use terrorist methods, absolutely. Uh, and, but it's important to distinguish this because it means that the way in which we try to win over that community, that gray area, requires uh, a much greater emphasis on the methods of counterinsurgency, which as we know are not solely military, in fact, not primarily military, but involve social, economic, and various political efforts to try to, you know, the phrase, win hearts and minds, uh, win social support. Um, and the strategy of counterterrorism, uh, uh, Dan Benjamin and Steve Simon in their book talk about concentric circles. Uh, there are the active terrorist networks, the perpetrators of mass murder, uh, but there are then the surrounding communities. And uh, at the top are the kind of dynamics that benefit the insurgent or terrorist groups when communities are willing to support. Uh, but the goal of strategy is to try to find a way to pull away that support uh, and to get people to, to walk away from the uh, insurgent networks. And as Lederach points out at the conclusion of his article in the final pages, there's uh, significant empirical evidence to suggest that the isolation strategies, the polarization process, uh, actually goes against these dynamics because it closes off the flow of information. It reduces interaction with the outside and intensifies reaction, uh, interactions within that community. Uh, less information, less objective analysis, and greater opportunity for the extremist voices to dominate uh, in those uh, conversations internally and to strengthen their uh, political power. And as he points out, the, the fundamental indicator that always should be in mind is uh, the capacity of the extremists to recruit. Uh, how are the policies that we're uh, conducting, how are those policies influencing that recruitment rate? Um, and one of the key dimensions there is what are the opportunities for exit that are provided for sometimes the extremists themselves, but especially for the surrounding communities that may be caught in a dynamic of sympathy or support with the extremists, but if given the right uh, encouragements and stimuli, could move towards uh, a, a more uh, positive direction and begin to go towards uh, hopefully the kind of more inclusive governance structures that uh, are being created as the alternative to the extremists. So this article by Lederach, just to close, I think gives us a, a really good framework, an analytic framework for uh, understanding how uh, engagement is really trying to get at the core of peeling away support from the extremist groups, from the insurgent militants. So let me close with that and turn it over to Michaela.
thank you. Um, should just get rid of that one and go to another one. <laughs> right. My presentation will focus on two articles in the publication from Ryan Kloss and from Douglas Ansel. Both articles are on Al-Shabaab. And more specifically, I will try to look at what Al-Shabaab does to win civilian support in Somalia. I will also add a few speculations, thoughts on the um, implication of current policies, especially post-London conference vis-a-vis Al-Shabaab and civilian support. Um, so we'll talk about framing and the use of benefits and coercion, and I will talk also about the second part on the um, London conference. This is a map, um, not, not the, it's the latest one, but there are small changes here. The, what I want to emphasize is that this is the whole country. South Central Somalia starts more or less uh, here, and uh, the green color the green color is the territory under the influence of al-Shabaab. So even today, you face a reality in Somalia where the largest part, part of the population and the territory are under the influence of al-Shabaab, so between 85, more or less 85, 90%, depending on which month you look into. Um, that is to say that um, a policy of isolation of al-Shabaab is unlikely to produce sustainable results because here we're talking about excluding the main actor in this conflict, um, the actor that has the largest influence over territory and population and resources. Um, I want to talk a bit about framing, about the use of framing in Al-Shabaab, and we can uh, define framing as the capacity to shape the nature of a problem in the minds of a population, uh, which requires understanding the problem, understanding the psychology of the potential contributors to the mov movement, and then framing the problem in order to sell it to the potential contributors. Uh, Al-Shabaab frames the problem in, in, a, in a quite clear way. So first of all, Somalis face a common enemy, which is represented primarily by the frontline countries, like Ethiopia first, Kenya, um, has capitalized on the war on terror and on their, their own blacklisting to develop um, into a sort of a counter-hegemonic discourse. Essentially, the root of Somalia problems in the framing of al-Shabaab is because the West Christian infidels are interfering with our own interests. If there's one thing that comes out very clearly in, in, um, in the history of Somalia is that the, there are times when all Somalis unite and it's when they have a common enemy. Second, the state-building project supported by the international community is non-Somali and against Islam. Um, that's the second element of their framing of the problem. So part of the problems that we face is because the international community is, again, meddling with our interests, supporting this centralized state-building process, which is, um, doesn't take roots with Somalis and it's non-Islamic. Consider that um, until one year ago, Shabab did, did a series of workshops across all South Central Somalia, highlighting the difference between Sharia law and democracy. And uh, their, their own conceptual framework was a dichotomy. They said, you see, that these two things are incompatible and it was done with community leaders in, across South Central Somalia. Third, recognizing clans as political entities is a recipe for chaos. Um, so whenever the international community, and if you look at the different processes in the last 20 years, 
starts applying power sharing formulas based on clan identity for Shabab that is a recipe for cows. And the TFG, the transitional federal government, is a puppet in the hands of the international community. Uh, it is written by clan politics and does non-representative. These are essential uh, points in Al-Shabaab's frame, framing of the problem to the civilian population in Somalia. Based on this framing, they provide an alternative, uh, which is essentially, first, Al-Shabaab is not based on clan. So their own decision-making structures, the way they are organized, is not based on a power-sharing agreement between the main clan families in Somalia. Which means that also people outside of certain clans are still allowed to be political. And you, you have to go back a bit in history here because essentially you have a few groups um, which are defined as warrior clans, warrior families, that have normally access to power, have legitimacy. Others uh, that struggle to get there. So you have this separation of society into groups that are allowed to be political and groups that are not. If you look, for instance, at the present um, power sharing agreement at the base of the transitional federal government, you have a 4.5 formula where four main clan families have um, the biggest chunk of the seats and power. And a 0.5 is assigned to Bantu groups, which are a numerical majority, but have always struggled to access to powers. When Shabab um, came out, they presented themselves as a platform for social justice, essentially. They, they managed to say, look, uh, everyone is the same in front of God, and, um, and you come with us, and you have an opportunity to, to, have, to, to be political, essentially. So you've seen groups like the Jarirwain, which is a confederation of Bantu group that franchised uh, widely with Al-Shabaab and gained power, in effect. Um, third element of their providing an alternative, they focus on the original Muslim community described in the Quran and the Hadith of the Prophet. And they say, this is the vision that we provide, and compare that with chaos that you've seen over the last 20 years and more um, in Somalia. They have a focus on youth, and they say that the focus on youth, Al-Shabaab means the youth in Arabic, actually, um, is, is a recipe to over clan, clan identity and division. And in this sense, um, even though I understand this could be seen as critical, it could be seen as a modernization movement. It's a movement that is trying to change Somali culture, in a way, in Islamizing it. Um, the areas under its control are stable, if not challenged from external forces. This is something what you might hear a lot of different stories, especially in the Nairobi policy environment, whereby people say, okay, look, when they go to a certain territory, the local clans will expel them. Actually, we have looked a bit into that, and it almost never happens, um, unless there's an external force that comes in. Um, and I will return back to that later on. And um, one of the patterns that we have seen also that makes it more accessible, uh, acceptable to local population is that in consolidating their influence over territory, they develop some form of tolerance. So when they're in a combat framework, uh, they, they, they are simplifying very intolerant. But you have examples like the um, increasing tolerance towards Sufi shrines um, or capacity to negotiate with clan entities, with clan leadership or the use of cat, mira, which is a drug that um, initially was strictly prohibited and then they managed to find ways to live with the population. Okay, it's prohibited but in public places, for instance. These are all mediation measures. One of the key points that I would like to um, share with you is that the long-term prospects of Al-Shabaab depend on civilian support more than on external pressure. Their focus is on winning the people, not on winning the war. And winning the war is a byproduct of winning the people. And uh, I want to focus a little bit more on this by um, 
looking at the literature on rebel civilian interaction and civil wars. So a civil war is essentially a battle for civilian support. Um, whatever the objective, control of the state or secession, um, control of territory is necessary. And in order to achieve control of territory, you need civilian support. Um, there are two essential things that groups do in the comparative literature in, in order to, to win civilian support is providing benefits or using coercion. Providing benefits could be selective when you pay salaries to new recruits or to um, soldiers or administrators in the movement. Or it could be services to the general population, which are essentially governance services like health, education, security, and stability. Now, um, literature shows that civilian support goes to the group that provides the better deal. And in terms of um, assessing the expectations of a population in a given territory, references made to the previous experiences, meaning if the population in the given territory have, have a previous experience of a well-functioning state that provides a certain level of services, health, education, stability, security, and so on, that expectation will be higher. If that is not there, that expectation will be lower. This is one point that I will make a bit later, that essentially Shabab faced an environment and a population that had very low expectations, so they got ahead with providing very little. The second element is the utilization of coercion. And first I want to say that violence is a function of the level of support that the group enjoys locally. So the, the higher the support, the less the need for violence. The lower the support, the more there is a need for violence. Civilian support by supporting those groups that um, display the most credible threat. And I will give you an example about this in, in one specific area later. And how accurate violence can be depends on information. Um, so the more information, the more intelligence you have, the more you can be accurate with using violence. The less information, the more you need to recur to broad targeting, which is widespread violence, which could turn the tide in the opposite direction, if exaggerated. Now, um, according to the literature, civilian support goes, uh, is, is a result of weighing these two things, uh, benefits and coercion, essentially. Plus, you might add um, some degree of ideological affinity. Now, when we go to Somalia, um, if you go back in 2006, when the um, Islamic Courts Union was essentially um, overwhelmed by the um, Ethiopian uh, incursion in the country, um, their own disappearing, essentially, as, as an institution was not matched by an expansion of state authority. So what you saw is that Shabab, from a very small militia within the court, managed to expand over a territory that had nothing else. The transitional federal government didn't have institutions that were functioning in the territory. So with no competition, Al-Shabaab established civilian support. And here, note that a minimal level of violence was needed. So this expansion, especially from south to central, was not made possible by the use of violence, but, but mainly by locally negotiated security arrangements. And here, remember, of the very low expectations. Essentially, the provision of a certain degree of security and stability was enough. Um, there was a historically weakened predatory state in Somalia. Um, this locally negotiated security arrangement, it's an important thing because Shabab had um, some degree of uh, easiness in engaging in that because of its decentralized structure. There's, uh, there, there's a central authority, an emir, and a shura, uh, which is composed by a group of people who do the highest level decision making. But when you go on the ground, there's a high degree of autonomy in the different regions, districts, towns. Uh, whereby there are local governors. These local governors has, have a high degree of autonomy in making decisions, political decisions. 
So there comes their own capacity to negotiate with the local groups the terms of their common engagement. And I think that the use of the word of franchising is really accurate here because you have simply the groups that make pragmatic decisions about associating with one group or with another group based on their own immediate interests. And violence also played a role, especially the display of a credible threat. And as I conclude, I will say a bit more about this. Now, let me try to connect this to the London conference and, um, and what, what is happening at a policy level. So first of all, you see that there's more convergence on isolation um, of Al-Shabaab and a heavier military um, engagement. Um, this is a map of uh, the project that is being discussed right now. Essentially, the idea is dividing the territory in four sectors under the influence of different uh, military forces. So sector one would be under Uganda and Burundi, which is the um, area uh, around Mogadishu, Middle Shabelle and Lower Shabelle. This is the territory where the Ethiopian army would be. Um, this is a mixture of regional administration, Djibouti, and maybe something else, still not clear. And this would be the area under the Kenyan army. And these are also the maritime sectors. This is important because Part of the discourse is now about drilling rights. Uh, so it seems that there's plenty of oil in the continental shelf of um, Somalia. So it, it's, it's certainly an important thing. Um, this um, military engagement is both external and internal. Um, external with these armies that you've seen, but also at the local level, you have a lot of militias, clan-based militias, and old warlords that have been on the scene for the last 20 years that engage with these different forces. Um, one of the first alerts that I would like to give you is that um, there is a very close association to certain clan structures, meaning alliances have been made to certain clans and not to other clans, which is very likely to result in those clans that are excluded from this agreement associating more strongly with Al-Shabaab. There is a discourse of caretaker authority. I'm, I'm about to close, David, yeah. And um, which is an interesting thing. It's not very clear in the final communique, but Essentially, um, overall authority, not only on aid, but also on Somali resources, has to be given to a group of country that have more solid stakes in Somalia. And, and the, the, the Somali authorities are just one um, of them. And this certainly might play in terms of al-Shabaab rhetoric, uh, because they can say, OK, look, you see these external forces that have drilling interest, essentially, and that's why they're doing all these things. Um, so polarization, the oppositional framework is still on, and you see the situation that, that, that also David described. I just want to give you two examples that I, I think could um, make more real what I've said. Um, in, uh, in the Belletwain, uh, which is here actually, you have today the Ethiopian army with um, a local mission which is called Shabelle Valley State, um, which is not really very much from that area. Now, the local population there is, are leaving since a few weeks with a 20-hour-a-day curfew. So essentially, business has stopped. Um, you need to go out three kilometers from town where you have villages controlled by Al-Shabaab where business is going on. And uh, there's a huge amount of resentment in the local population in Belletwain about the, what they're facing right now. Um, another example, you have, um, again, the Ethiopian army in Baidoa today, in this area. Shabab vacated um, on the very same day, so not a single shot was fired. Uh, when they left, they issued a communique to the local population where they said that um, business cannot open. So no shops or nothing can work. 
and the consequences would be very serious for those who do. So there's um, economic in town, again, for other reason is, is again, economic activity is stopped. And this, I think, goes back when we talk about um, displaying a credible threat. And that is the capacity of control that they have on the population with, with displaying a credible threat of violence. I, I think just the last question, I would like to end with a question because we need to ask ourselves, what do these armies and these local proxies do when they are on the territory? Um, how are they perceived by the local population? And based on that, um, who are they likely to support? Because this conflict is about civilian support more than anything else. Thank you. Shamsia, please. Good morning. I'm going to present the article by Ashley Lynn Green. And the title of the article is Rethinking Somali National Identity, Nationalism, State Formation, and Peace Building. And what we did in this article is look at uh, the competing identities. Uh, in the process of uh, nationalism, and particularly the process that actually uh, inhibits the possibility of uh, having, uh, promoting social cohesion and stability in Somalia, which is a long-term goal uh, for peace building. And our argument is, uh, although Somalis share the same ethnic community, they have a shared uh, ancestry, um, they profess the same uh, Islamic faith. The nationalism sentiments have, have never really taken uh, root. The only time when they are able to come together is when they are faced by um, an external actor. And that, that unity is temporary. It never, it, never, it never sustains to actually promote uh, peace and stability in, um, in the society. And what we are actually arguing for is uh, adoption of a horizontal and vertical model that will bring together these competing identities uh, for our, a stable and, and peaceful Somalia. There are a number of uh, debates that have gone on on uh, nationalism in, 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 in Somalia. Uh, what is nationalism in Somalia? At what stage uh, is uh, a Somalis able to be called uh, a nation? There's a group that thinks that the fact that this group of people speak the same language, profess the same faith, have a shared ancestry, have a common narrative, that is a good recipe for promoting national unity. But then again, this has never sustained, has never been able to actually bring uh, the people together. There's also a different view that says that we have had the different competing identities coming together, being brought together by what Michele has alluded to, the presence of an external threat. Again, this, uh, this approach of nationalism that is actually um, a, a strategy as opposed to an ideology has never actually been able to, to take root uh, because the moment they are able to deal with their external um, um, uh, the, the common enemy that they have, they go back to their local uh, units and, and, and that cause, causes acrimony between them. Then there is a middle um, uh, stand view that says that yes, Somalis share a common characteristic 
and have in the past united as a people pay based on these uh, 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 shared characteristics that they have. And it is this that uh, needs to be actually uh, exploited because it has the potential to actually bring uh, the Somalis together. So we, look at, uh, we looked at uh, what, are the, uh, what is impeding, what is stopping uh, Somalis from, from coming together, from these competing identities uh, coming together. One thing that we identified is uh, an absence of a central government, a central authority that actually provides basic services to the people across the nation, regardless of which identity or uh, you, 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 uh, you possess. And the basic services we looked at uh, are security, health care, law, and order. And in absence of this state security or a structure, a central structure to provide these basic services, a, a vacuum uh, uh, is present. And people still need these services. This vacuum is usually filled by small groups of either militia groups, religious structures, or clan identities. The challenge with them is that they're never able to actually uh, reach out to the entire uh, Somali community, but they are confined to the specific population, to a specific region. And within that context, there's competition for resources, which resources that are not enough, they're not equally di uh, distributed, the resources are scarce. In the process, there's division um, among, uh, among the, the polity. There are a number of uh, realities actually uh, in, in, in Somalia. Clan-based and religious institutions are the structures that have been able to provide these basic services in the absence of, the, of, uh, of a government. This makes clan and Islam as essential elements to consider and include in a nation building and state building strategy for, for long-term peace building. But the reality again on the ground is there has been clan disputes and power struggles between the different political uh, uh, elite from the different clan st uh, structures, which has derailed uh, the peace processes. Wars have been uh, fought over territory, control, and increased competition for resources. The religious uh, structures are usually Islamic movements. These uh, religious movements are opposed to clan structures, uh, structures that have a clan identity, and in addition to that, they are opposed by external uh, actors who fear the rise of Islamic extremism. An example of such, such a religious uh, structure is the Union of Islamic Courts, in as much that in 2006 they were able to restore peace for six months, there was fear of uh, the rise of Islamic extremism, and there was uh, an invasion to actually uh, deal with them. Now, despite these negative aspects, religion and clan identities are the driving force for the social, political, and economic organization in Somalia. And any ap approach that will exclude these two will not, ha will not uh, succeed in, 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 in building peace in, in Somalia. So what options are there for peace builders? 
The focus should be to est uh, establish inclusive uh, structures by ensuring that all the different groups are, repre are represented in the governance systems at all levels, at the local, regional, and national level. We emphasize that it is important to have all the traditional structures such as clan and religion, in this case Islam, in the process of uh, state formation. There are a number of strategies that have been tried over time. Um, in 1970, there was uh, an attempt to suppress uh, clan identity, uh, which was basically a, po a political rhetoric. It, it did not work because uh, behind the scenes, the political elite actually exploited uh, clan affiliation to Ghana for political uh, support. Then there, there was partition of Somalia along clat, uh, clan lines, which was uh, uh, equally not um, constructive. And then there's the now the 4.5 uh, formula, where we have 180, 184 seats in parliament, where we have 122 slots that are given to major clans, and then 62 are allocated to a combination of the smaller clans. This formula is uh, opposed by Islamists and intellectuals who see it as an unfair representation and uh, of the, uh, an inaccurate representation of the clans. So based on this, what is the alternative for a successful peace uh, process and state building uh, in, in Somalia? Power sharing is, is, is good if well enforced because it legitimizes uh, state uh, authority. There has been proposals to consider a bicameral uh, system where we have uh, one wing represented by the clan and another wing representing population uh, using a geographical uh, formula as an alternative to the 4.5. Another alternative is identity reconstruction where the emphasis will be to identify and strengthen a common and inclusive identity that will have the capacity to rise above the dominant exclusive uh, uh, identity. In this case, clan is an exclusive identity. So the remaining two uh, dominant uh, identities are either Islam or Somali nationalism. But for Islamic identity, although it is a possibility, it will be opposed by outsiders who are afraid of Islamic extremism. In addition to that, uh, there is also the shortcoming where uh, Islamic movements have used uh, violence uh, against the people, which has caused wide, uh, widespread uh, instability and, uh, and suffering among the people. Additionally, the Islamist uh, group reject both Somali and uh, Somali nationality and, uh, and clan identity. And they advocate for an, a religious uh, identity and particularly a, univer a universal Muslim uh, nation. For this reason, an Islamic state uh, or Somali cohesion under Islamic identity would undermine and exclude other, trad uh, other uh, traditional identities. Now, the vertical and horizontal model which we are proposing seeks to con unconditionally include all the other um, divergent identities equally. 
And the better identity is to have a single dominant identity that brings together all these competing identities, which include uh, clan, religion, and any other identity that might be present within the Somali society. Now, identifying the structures from uh, the society and providing the, them space within the state uh, structures at all, level, at all levels is an option, although it is a challenge. But this, uh, this uh, power sharing arrangement is, is, is possible and addresses the, the short-term and, and long-term needs for establishing uh, a peaceful uh, Somalia. To establish an inclusive functional state institution will, uh, that will contribute to stability in Somalia requires that we have a government that pro provides uh, basic services nationwide. That will enable the, the central government to actually diminish the reliance of the local population on um, uh, support for limited groupings that will provide these services to them. Another thing that is important is to have the full participation of, uh, of Somali people in decision making of their economic, uh, social, and political aspects, as opposed to, to having um, imposition of, of, of government. An example is that the TFG government is always seen as uh, an imposition from, from outside. So allowing the Somalis them, themselves to actually make the decision on what kind of uh, kind of government that, that, that they would like uh, to have. And just to conclude, uh, uh, sustainable nation building in Somalia cannot be built in, uh, in absence of uh, inclusive institutions. In absence of a cohesive national identity, peace builders should actually concentrate on shaping an inclusive uh, institution that will contribute to stable and uh, viable state. Thank you. Good. Yeah. Uh, Laura, please. Thank you. Um, just wanted to quickly say, um, on behalf of my uh, fellow students uh, who are also part of this project, uh, I know we were all very grateful for the opportunity to collaborate with the Life and Peace Institute uh, on this, and I know that we all learned a lot from our conversations. Uh, so for my uh, own portion, uh, I explored two related questions proposed by LPI uh, that asked whether looking at U.S. involvement in Somalia over time um, might shed light on patterns of engagement that may have in some cases obstructed peacebuilding efforts or uh, contributed to perpetuating cycles of violence. Um, and then also thinking about whether uh, looking at this uh, involvement over time might also reveal potential lessons to be learned from missed opportunities. Um, so in particular, uh, how has the war on terror framed US engagement in Somalia? And then also thinking about how it was framed prior to 2001. Uh, and then from that discussion, thinking about some possible alternatives for, uh, for US engagement. Uh, so during uh, the time period uh, immediately after World War II and up through the 1980s, of course, uh, of course the Cold War was uh, a dominant frame in U.S. engagement with um, not only Somalia, but the entire region in the Horn of Africa, uh, as the U.S. and Soviet Union were vying for influence in the region. Uh, and the U.S. provided uh, between 1954 and 1987 approximately $380 million in military aid to Somalia, as well as uh, bilateral economic aid that totaled uh, around $677 million. Uh, and I guess some um, have argued that 
Cold War assistance was purely strategic, and so measuring effectiveness um, could, be, could be a difficult thing. Uh, but one point uh, that I found interesting to lift up uh, is that uh, some scholars have pointed to uh, the fact that Somali President uh, Bari's distribution of the aid uh, at this time was increasingly perceived in clan terms, um, echoing some of what we've heard here. Uh, and one anthropologist has argued that clan identity became more visible and prominent um, as a form of identity during this time. Uh, and not only that, but that the international community also adopted it as a mode of analysis. Um, so, of course, uh, the significance of clan affiliations can't be denied. Uh, but one thing to perhaps think about is uh, whether adopting that language um, could perhaps lead to an emphasis on exclusively clan-based solutions at the expense of opportunities to build that kind of horizontal relationships uh, that Shamsia was talking about. Um, moving into uh, kind of the late 80s and nearing the end of the Cold War, um, the United States was avoiding uh, direct criticism of Bari for human rights abuses for a time, uh, but ultimately did freeze foreign assistance to Somalia, uh, something that one author called an ethical luxury that the logic of the Cold War had prevented in the past. Uh, so here perhaps we see uh, a more flexible framing of U.S. relations with Somalia, um, although Mohamed Sahnoun, uh, who was the U.N. Special Representative for Somalia in 1992, has cited no substantive uh, international action on behalf of those documented abuses in the late 1980s as another uh, perhaps a missed opportunity for uh, recasting engagement with Somalia. Uh, and after Bari's regime fell in January 1991, um, many would say that Somalia fell from the radar screen uh, in the U.S. Uh, until humanitarian crisis really put it back uh, on the radar screen. Um, absent perhaps um, a well-defined Cold War frame, uh, former Ambassador Cohen uh, has cited bureaucratic wrangling over how to characterize the problem, uh, whether it was a food problem or a security problem, as an obstacle to early action. Um, so I'm sure most are familiar with the details of uh, humanitarian intervention and its aftermath, uh, but one thing that uh, some folks have lifted up is that uh, more coherent international efforts to pursue a longer-term reconciliation strategy uh, may have uh, contributed to creating the space for Somali-led peacebuilding uh, during that time period. Uh, moving through the, the 1990s and up to uh, 2001, uh, where, we, where we have this very sort of well-defined uh, kind of a war on terror frame, um, President George W. Bush added a number of Somali groups to the U.S. terrorist list beginning in 2001. Uh, and many have argued that by choosing a method of covert military means to pursue terror suspects, uh, the U.S. and its allies uh, perhaps lost the battle for public opinion in Somalia. Uh, and additionally, Islamic NGOs that provide social services have come under pressure since the war on terror, uh, fearing charges of links to uh, Islamist radicals. Um, so this has impeded their work, uh, this framing of and characterizing of, um, of engagement. Uh, and also after uh, a policy of supporting Somali warlords to, com to combat the rise of Islamic courts union uh, from February to June in 2006, uh, the U.S. also tacitly supported the Ethiopian invasion of Somalia to depose the courts. Um, drone strikes have increased in Somalia since President Obama took office, and uh, the U.S. government uh, perhaps has missed, um, in these ways, opportunities again to recast that engagement. 
Um, and then picking up a little bit on the, the London conference, um, a recent BBC story um, following that conference noted uh, that Secretary of State Clinton has ruled out talks with al-Shabaab saying that uh, its decision to join forces with al-Qaeda showed that it is not on the side of peace, stability, or the Somali people. Um, but just thinking about whether, um, whether that type of isolation is perhaps uh, an effective strategy or not. Uh, so from uh, just some of those very brief overview uh, of the history of, of U.S. engagement in Somalia, thinking about some possible alternative options uh, and recommendations that uh, drew and were inspired largely by uh, some of the things that John Paul Lederach had talked about. Um, certainly, clans and subclans play a critical role in Somali society. Um, however, pursuing a process of exclusively based clan reconciliation, clan based uh, reconciliation uh, might exacerbate uh, existing divisions rather than drawing on those linkages uh, that might be present between and across clans. Um, so if there are ways for the United States and international community um, to support a Somali-led process that helps to create the space for partnerships uh, among professionals, women groups, clan elders, uh, business people in a way that doesn't undermine uh, potential prospects for peace building and, and building those partnerships. Um, also to realize the full potential of a strategic peace building approach. Um, INGOs and NGOs uh, need the freedom to engage in dialogue with all parties to the conflict, oftentimes including those designated as terrorist organizations. Um, and current US law severely limits such activities. And particularly the war on terror lens has led to the isolation of groups like Al-Shabaab um, so perhaps modifying uh, some of the barriers to working with such groups uh, would also enable NGOs and INGOs to, to engage in more constructive peace-building approaches. Uh, and a quote from um, a 2008 Chicago Tribune series uh, sort of highlights the perception, I think, uh, that uh, perhaps exists among many Somalis that U.S. interests uh, often take precedence over local aspirations. Um, quote, it's not just that people miss the Islamic Courts Union, said a Somali humanitarian worker. They re uh, resent the Ethiopians and Americans tearing it all up, using Somalia as their battlefield against global terrorism. It's like the Cold War all over again. Um, so one wonders whether um, frame perhaps has shifted, but policies that are characterized by dominance, whether through a Cold War lens or uh, a war on terror lens, will engender similar feelings of exclusion. Um, so if there are ways for, for the U.S. and international community to adopt more transparent and inclusive approaches and perhaps particularly demilitarizing uh, policy towards Somalia. And then finally, thinking about alternative frames, um, how one uh, frames, or per, uh, frames a perceived problem uh, can influence the proposed solution uh, along with the tools and tactics used to achieve it. Uh, so if terrorism is, is defined as the problem, the strategy will resolve, uh, revolve around its focus on terrorism. Uh, but as we've seen, uh, rather than transforming cycles of violence in Somalia, um, certain war and terror policies seem to contribute to perpetuating them. Uh, so a possible alternative framework that would focus on uh, human-centered, relationship-driven, and respectful engagement uh, could perhaps begin to facilitate a gradual shift in U.S. policy toward effectively addressing cycles of violence in Somalia. Um, if, a, if human security is defined as the problem, one may envision a strategy that re uh, revolves around human well-being. Uh, and so that human, human security frame could underscore the critical role of non-state actors in identifying security needs, um, their understanding of what uh, peace and stable society would look like, uh, and also promoting reconciliation 
and uh, could help encourage the development of linkages, those vertical and horizontal relationships uh, between international institutions, states, and non-state actors, which would be a key component of strategic peace building. Uh, so one hopes that the U.S. international community would move in that direction. Thanks. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you, panelists. Great presentations. So uh, we have time now for lots of questions. Um, we have microphones, I believe. So why don't we wait a couple minutes uh, maybe to get the microphones. You can think about questions if you want to discuss among yourselves, and, and then we'll um, get started here. So... Um, um, I think we're ready already, so why don't we start with um, Bill there in the back. William Zarfman Sais. Um, assuming, as you've said, that the one thing that unites Somalis is a foreign enemy, and I think that that's very well established by its relations with Ethiopia in the past, for example, um, it would seem that the strategy of uh, humanitarian engagement, which I understand you're you're advocating, is, and as far as I can read rapidly in your little booklet, would be the worst thing to do. Um, it would unite the Somalis against us. Uh, it would uh, give them uh, uh, give support to Shabab, um, and that the best thing to do would be a, uh, a, a uh, isolation and containment, and and leave them w work out their own problems uh, as long as long as they don't export them uh, either to the neighbors. Uh, or by sea uh, outside. I think that follows from your analysis. Respond, anyone? Or should we, maybe well, let's, let's take a few questions and then we can respond. I think that's good. So, yes. John Harbison Sice, uh, you've said none of you have said anything at all about the interests of the regional actors, what the Kenyans, uh, what, what their interests are in all of this, what the Ethiopians really seek uh, for that matter, the Ugandans and the Eritreans. So I think that's an important dimension you want to look at. Other questions? Well, why don't we start with responses on this? Michele, you want to start? <laughs> right. Um, um, I, I can talk about, I mean, maybe I can try to re respond to the second question. Yeah, on the, yeah, on the, the influence of the regional actors. It's very interesting because you see that the dynamic has changed. And contrary to the past, there is not only Ethiopia that has interest in direct military engagement in Somalia, but also other countries. Kenya in the south, uh, Uganda and Burundi. Djibouti has sent already over 900 troops um, to Somalia. And uh, there's, there are speculations about the reasons why this is happening. Um, like the, the main speculation on Uganda, for instance, is primarily internal interests. So that, that the current leadership can rephrase itself as, these are all speculations, of course, and there could be a different opinion. It is for sure a fact that there is a convergence of interests 
in um, engaging militarily in Somalia. Um, the East African, which is a weekly, uh, pretty influential newspaper in, in Kenya, came out immediately after the London conference with a photograph where the leaders of the regional, the frontline states and the regional countries in the photographs after the London conference were in the first row, around David Cameron, and all the others were in the second row. And it said, this is a shift, essentially, in, in, in terms of policy making uh, in Somalia. It is certainly a factor, but um, in, in terms of sustainability of this engagement in Somalia, I think that there are open questions, meaning how far it will be sustainable for these countries to maintain their troops in Somalia, what will be the perception of the local population um, while they are there, and how effectively they can control the territory. Um, from a very limited um, narrow point of view, what we experience as agencies working in Somalia is that our operational space has restricted meaning that the so-called liberated areas face a number of genetic threats that were not there before. Uh, so certainly there is a resurgence of crime, criminal outfits connected with pirates, uh, which restricts our capacity of movement and makes the risk, the operational risks, uh, more serious than in the past. Shabab had certainly a capacity to suppress and control also criminal outfits in their territory, including pirate ones, um, which I think I don't have an answer, so I'm sorry if I answer with more questions than answers, but um, <laughs> I think that we really need to look very carefully at what are the outcomes of these engagements. Let's remember that a few years ago Ethiopians came in with I think 46,000 troops and uh, two years later they left and the result of their leaving was a consolidated control over territory of Al-Shabaab. Also, one question that uh, um, main, um, people are asking: uh, Once an external actor has gone and the areas uh, have been liberated, if truly they have been liberated, who takes over? We don't have a central government that has the capacity to actually uh, take over uh, state or responsibilities in this area. So the option is they either occupy the place or leave it to a militia. So which is the better option? Uh, which is the better option here? Stay out. Stay out. Stay well, and out. I think, Bill, by your question, were you suggesting that humanitarian engagement would be a military operation or not? Um, I mean, because that seems to be one of the problems, you know, the perhaps overly militarized international responses and would there be an option for a less militarized version of it? Can I just say Please. a thing about this? I, one of the things that we are struggling with is maintaining neutrality and a perception of neutrality, um, which is, in, in this context, it is an assertive 
process, you need to assert your neutrality. And asserting it means that you need to say things that get out of the mainstream. The mainstream is essentially today, in terms of a bandwagon of humanitarian actors following the military actors. The very next day that Ethiopians entered in Baidoa, two, week, two three weeks ago, you had UN and agency representatives flying in. Uh, there is a too close association between the military options that are being developed, the political options, and humanitarian actors. And, and I think that for agencies that want to work in the humanitarian space, doing a better work in terms of asserting neutrality, which means being able to work with a different range of actors, would probably pay off. But you, you don't see a lot of that today. I can tell you that when we came out with this publication, which says things that are a bit different to what you hear mainly, there were a lot of people interested that came to us, oh, this is really unusual to hear that you guys talk about this stuff because we don't hear about it. And um, so I think that one way, one perspective of looking to this is really the issue of neutrality. And in many instances, it has been lost. So there's, there's no neutrality, no effort to generate a perception of neutrality. Several other questions here and here and over there. Uh, my name is Mangisto uh, from NSU. I feel that this question, this question was not addressed properly. And it is a reflection of the weakness of the conflict analysis and resolution tried in the Somali. We have been trying to analyze and resolve the Somali conflict in isolation from the system of conflict in the Horn of Africa. There is a conflict system in the Horn of Africa. Why is, why is Eritrea in, in Somalia or supporting uh, the insurgents in Somalia? It's because it's against Ethiopia. It's a proxy war. And why is Ethiopia frequently or repeatedly intervening in Somalia? It has its own Somali problem, the Ugadeni problem. And it's not for the sake of the Somalis. So, if you are approaching Somali conflict in isolation, you're repeating the same mistake. So what do you say? Don't you need to approach it comprehensively, taking into account the whole conflict system in the Horn of Africa? That's my first question. My second question is, it's surprising that I didn't hear from anybody from the panel that gender is very important in the Somali conflict. Don't you think empowering women, include, including them in the peace process and in the, in the peace building efforts, very important, very critical? along with clan and religion issue. Thank you. We'll get a couple other questions and then we'll, we'll try to answer. <laughs> yes, please. Mm -hmm. um, David Throop from CITES and the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Um, I found your first map that you had up um, extremely interesting because it, it seems to me that the West has been conceptualizing um, Somalia as a state, and maybe we ought to reconceptualize it as an extremely weak confederal system. So if you have Puntland, Somaliland, Galmadug, um, South Central, and Jubaland as the constitutive political units of a uh, new confederation, and perhaps eventually including Ogaden, um, that might actually be a better way of conceptualizing the blocks that need to be integrated, transcending religious and clan and sub-clan uh, connections. So instead of going for the mega picture, 
going for a more localized uh, regional picture. Um, now, it seems to me that the, the interventions which are taking place at the moment are basically driven by the uh, East African states may conceivably be contributing to that kind of an agenda. Um, I think Bill Zartman is, is to a certain extent right that, that one clear potential solution is isolationism and have nothing to do with it and try to contain the overspill and let the Somalis work it out and fight it out. But the alternative, I think, is, is to actually to, to authorize and, and empower a regional intervention. Now, there are lots of problems in that. There are certainly problems, as we learned from 2006, 2008, uh, to have many, too many Ethiopian boots trampling around south-central uh, Somalia. That is not going to contribute to a solution. Um, but it looks to me as though Jubaland and the Kenyan intervention, and I'd like to push you further on this, has the possibility to be the most creative and successful strategy that anybody has come up with in 20 years. And that this doesn't concern Somalia, it just concerns Jubaland and the overspill from Jubaland in northeastern and northern Kenya. And it's facilitated by the interconnections, particularly the commercial interconnections between the Ogadeni elite on the Kenyan side of the border and the Ogadeni elite on the Jubaland side of the border. And restructuring access to the port of Kismero would be a major financial blow to Al-Shabaab. They get about $50 million a year from controlling Kismero. If that could be restructured and integrated with the already fairly dynamic economy of uh, northern Kenya, uh, and this could be extended. The danger is that it's going to be an Ogadeni deal. The problem is getting the Marahan and the Hati and other subclans in Jubaland co-opted into the system so that it is in their economic interests to collaborate with the Ogadenis and the Kenyans uh, in making this work rather than it's in their economic interest to stick with Al-Shabaab. Those kind of localized commercial deals, uh, I think, offer the strategy of bringing localized peace in Jubaland, an Ethiopian deal bringing localized peace in parts of South Central, uh, Puntland doing its own thing, Somaliland doing its own thing. Um, and then confederating them seems to me a, it's a very gradual, it's a very attenuated process. It doesn't need large-scale contribution from the West because that would be counterproductive for all the reasons that you have, have highlighted. And it needs very considerable political finesse on the part of the EGAD partners. But it is just conceivable that the Kenyans might have stumbled on the origins of a solution. I wouldn't put it any higher than that. I suspect it will go ghastly long, wrong, uh, but, but as an approach, a theoretical strategy, uh, it's extremely interesting. Okay, uh, hand over here and then we'll have some responses here. 
Hi, um, Nina from Internews Network. You talked about the uh, sort of asserting neutrality of humanitarian organizations, but given the media landscape in Somalia and the difficulty that a lot of organizations and local actors face in actually communicating their message, how, what do you think is a solution or a strategy for being able to communicate information more clearly? There seems to be a lot of propaganda going on with Al-Shabaab and on the humanitarian actor side and on the national government side and the sort of a lack of free journalism in the country really inhibits people from communicating their message in a more honest and independent way. Okay, um, responses? Um, Laura, do you want to start and come up the panel and Shamsia? Yeah, please. Mm -hmm. any, any part that you want to? Um, one thing that has, uh, has come out from uh, the publication and, uh, and, the, and, and discussions that we've had is that isolation is not a good strategy. An approach that actually just focuses on regional or international security is not comprehensive enough to deal with the complexities on the ground. If anything, it, 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 it leads to further complexities uh, and, and competition uh, internally. And that is why we have countries like Kenya going in. When Kenya went in, it was because of uh, abduction of humanitarian workers. That was the information that was, that, that was given. But the story kept changing with time, that we are concerned and would like to eradicate uh, al-Shabaab from, from, uh, from, uh, from Somalia. There is also the, the international dimension that is concerned about is, Islamic extremism and what uh, the growth of uh, al-Shabaab would mean for the, the war on terror and that the region could become a hub for, for uh, terrorist uh, organization. So a military approach is not the best. There is a need to have a comprehensive approach that actually uh, invests more on uh, political uh, interventions and inclusiveness of, of, uh, of different actors, particularly political actors uh, within, within Somalia. Yeah. yeah, I don't really know what to add. I think that um, questions contain also comments that are very um, important and I share most of the things that I heard. Um, the United States was the first country to come out, I think, two years ago with the discourse of the dual track approach. And uh, they said, okay, we still sustain the transition of the government, so the state of a, um, the, the project of developing a state in Somalia is still in our um, part of our project, but we want also to work with local realities. And that's when a number of countries followed and they started generating incentives for local realities um, emerging, and let me try to be more specific here. Um, this is Galmaduk State, and uh, this is Himan and Hib. This is Al Sunna Wal Jamaa, uh, the project of Azania, or together with Raskamboni that you were talking about 
is more or less in this area, which is essentially in Ogaden. Uh, now, most of these realities are clan-based. Uh, I, I think it still remains to be seen how sustainable uh, these projects are, and uh, I think it would be probably a pointless speculation on my side to say this will work or this won't work. If there's one thing that I've learned, I made. We make no predictions, actually, because in six, frankly speaking, we don't know what will happen in six months from now. Um, it could be the origin of a solution. So I think it will remain to be seen. The original force that was planned to um, lead this process, Professor Gandhi with the Azania project, is already going down, essentially, um, also in terms of local support. So there is another reality, which is the Ras Kamboni, group led by Ahmed Madobe, uh, who interestingly, interestingly was with Al-Shabaab. So that talks a lot about the pragmatism. And uh, maybe just one element that I could add, um, not to contradict in any way what you said, but just to add to the picture, is that one of the things that is, one of the ways to um, analyze the Somali conflict is that you have um, a political dimension and a clan dimensions, and both dimensions are political. But what you see is that these two dimensions are interconnected. To simplify, every single clan has put their eggs in different baskets. Uh, so if you look at the main groups in the Awiya, as the Darod, Deer, Digin Mirifla, and so on, they have key people in the TFG framework, key people in the Al-Shabaab framework, and in some cases also in the regional administration when the clan is relevant. Um, that is to say, I think that there is very pragmatic decision-making that is taking place at clan level in terms of dividing their eggs between different baskets so that whatever scenario develops, they will have an opportunity to stay in power, essentially, and to defend their own interests. Um, yeah, just a, I mean, more, more of a question uh, to, to feed back to you. I, what you're suggesting in terms of some of these uh, problems and the perhaps uh, alternative strategies, uh, to me suggests that the, the dominant frame that is now driving at least U.S. policy and much of the global policy of a you know, narrowly conceived global war on terror uh, is not helpful at all. Uh, certainly there is a regional conflict dynamic and that really has to be looked at as well as these dynamics within specific social groups. Uh, and if we look at other settings, Unless those are fundamentally resolved, the conflict will continue, perhaps worsen. Uh, and which actors can play the greatest role? Certainly the people on the ground, uh, civil society, the existing authorities, uh, clan structures, and others uh, need to be given the opportunity to try to work out these differences. Uh, so what it suggests to me is a, a, a fundamental rethink not only on the part of all of us who are trying to look at peace-building options, but really in terms of our own government uh, and the international community, uh, and the attempt to impose uh, this simplistic frame uh, and to willy-nilly decide that this or that formation, the courts or whatever it might be now, Shabab, uh, is uh, a pariah to be um, destroyed if, if necessary by military means. Uh, these are not helping at all and probably exacerbating the overall uh, dangers and conflict dynamics. So and I think that's really the principal goal of the study uh, to try to encourage a, a different way of thinking about the conflict entirely. And some of these ideas that you're sharing are, are helpful in this regard. And so, uh, 
more questions I see, so in the back there and I think over we here. didn't respond to the well, questions of... Oh, sorry. You want to... Um, Shams, yeah, sorry, more response. Yeah. When, we're, when uh, we're thinking about alternative, um, uh, uh, options, we talked about identifying, creating space for all structures that exist in society that will bring together all the competing identities and any other identity, which includes uh, uh, women, uh, the participation of civil society at the different levels and, and including them in, uh, in state building uh, and governance structures uh, for Somali. Agreed on that. Okay. So, more questions? Um, hands over here. Hello, my name is Amandine. I'm from the Heller School for Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University. And I heard the word identity a lot. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind touching base or painting us more of a clearer picture of what the Somali identity looks like and how this, can, this identity can be consolidated, fostered, and also promoted in order to be used positively for peace building. Thank you. Uh, Nathaniel Heard from uh, World Vision. We've been doing uh, relief and development work in Somalia for the past uh, three decades. I want to touch on the issue of sort of security and stability uh, approaches to humanitarian assistance and development, and then ask a question about it in the context of peace building. We've found that not only in Somalia, but in other places as well, when stabilization is the framework for development and or humanitarian assistance, as well as a sort of securitized approach, it actually often undermines the humanitarian situation, the development situation, and the effectiveness both of humanitarian assistance and development assistance. In terms of the sort of mixing up of the two, one of our more recent concerns, as well as the broader humanitarian community, has been uh, the language and approach of some of the military actors. Uh, the Kenyan military, for example, has repeatedly uh, framed what it's doing in sort of humanitarian terms. We're doing this to increase humanitarian access. The UN, uh, as well as the NGO community, has said very clearly, we think it's contributing to displacement, and we think it's also undermining humanitarian act uh, access, as well as uh, blurring the line between what is military and what is humanitarian, which in turn puts uh, our agencies at risk, as well as the people that we serve. So looking sort of post-London conference and looking at the possibility of funding for peace-building activities, how do you see the sort of security approach, uh, stabilization approach, affecting aid decisions specifically related to peace building for Somalia? Another question here. Hi, my name is Eric Robinson with the National Endowment for Democracy. Um, the uh, I just have a quick question about how you're framing Al-Shabaab, and I'm a little bit uh, confused. 
Are you saying that uh, on one side I hear people saying, and particularly the article that you seem to also be uh, mirroring, the Al-Shabaab part of the solution to the problems faced by Somalia, question mark. Um, are you saying that you're looking at this purely as a model, and as a model in terms of engaging people, as a strategy for mobilizing people, that it's a very effective model, and from that perspective, you find it very fascinating, very interesting, and very good. I guess my question for you then is, do you think that Al-Shabaab is good for Somalia and Somalis? And then I'd just like to respond to uh, the woman here from Internews, uh, just uh, about the issue of media. Uh, I think that it's incredibly crucial because as we've seen in uh, Syria, for example, suddenly at some point in the broadcast you heard every commentator qualifying like, well, as far as we know, this is the report or this video is accurate as far as we know. It's been a very powerful tool, tool in Somalia in terms of uh, using disinformation. I think uh, they've watched in Somalia how the masters around the world use disinformation to, uh, to great effect. and. They're doing a good job. However, I must say that the international community and Somalis themselves have uh, worked very hard to um, take clan out of a lot of their reporting. Over the past decade, you've seen a significant shift in reporting uh, in media that's not just clan focused the clan bias that you saw a decade ago. And there are a lot of people working very hard to achieve that. There's been a lot of donor funding to do that. I know at the endowment we've supported a project uh, where they're working with journalists to do humanitarian reporting. How do you report specifically on humanitarian issues? Um, so there's, it's an incredibly vi vibrant uh, uh, scene in Somalia in terms of media. That's why it's so sad when you look at Somaliland for all the wonderful things it has going for it that they uh, have not passed the media law in Somaliland and it's actually quite uh, strangled and choked off in terms of expression uh, in the north. Thanks. Okay, maybe one other question back here. My name is Trey Thomas. I'm a PhD student at George Mason University. Um, do you think that there is an overemphasis on the TFG as an administration, and should there be uh, more focus, as this gentleman said, on regional administrations? with the caveat that some of them, like Jubaland, seem to be a creation of Kenya and maybe Ethiopian forces. Um, you know, should there be more focus on, you know, uh, locally-led uh, regional administrations like Gal Madug? Um, but also, how do you deal with aspiring regional administrations to do schools, I think, in Ain and Somaliland, uh, and other uh, regions who might want to uh, have independence from the, their larger regions? Okay, let me start. Yeah, that's a really hot one. <laughs> um, is al good for Somali and Somalis? I can't respond to that, so I'm not a Somali. And, uh, and, and um, I am very careful with that, meaning that as an agency, we, we refrain from expressing political opinion. We try to develop analysis. Uh, we try to explore options, and we try to suspend judgment. So, and we try to not make a distinction between good and bad guys. What we see, um, and, and I think the, the article that you're referring to is Ryan Close's article. Um, Shabab has displayed a very good capacity of framing the problem, selling it to the population, generating benefits that are consistent with expectations, and uh, displaying a credible threat that maintains control and 
I gave the example of what they've done in Baidoa, for instance, in terms of preventing businesses from um, opening. To that, I could add that if you look over the last 20 years, you've had essentially two political projects that managed to develop a thin layer of uh, cohesion between different client entities, and both of them were projects of political Islam. One was the Islamic Courts Union, and the second one is Al-Shabaab, without saying anything on whether it's, it's good or bad. Third element that I also talked about in the articles comes out is this capacity to negotiate local security arrangements, which means to recognize from a pragmatic point of view the local plan structures while maintaining a centralized decision-making decision level. I think that these are all part of a good model, actually. So that, that, that's an opinion. I really refrain from expressing good or bad because really that's not my role and it should be Somalis that it's their own country in the end. Uh, what is interesting for us is, is, is that I, I think that we should try as agencies and policymakers to develop a capacity to suspend judgment between what is good and bad, what we like and we don't like. Look at the reality, how is, and develop pragmatic solutions for work, working with the reality. And in this case, we think that also in the Islamist frameworks, there are things that could be utilized in the process of positive transformation. Um, yeah, I will leave questions. Yeah. The issue of identity for a Somali, what comes first? Are they first a Somali? Do they belong to the religion or do they belong to their clan? It all varies depending on the circumstance, like we have said. But for peace building, the approach that would like the Somalis themselves to generate is an approach that is going to have uh, to come up with a dominant identity that is going to bring together all the competing identities. And for us, and what the article proposes is Somali nationalism that will actually bring together the different uh, identities, the clan identity, the religious identity, and any other identity that might be present in, uh, in Somalia. But yes, they are Somali, they are Muslim, they belong to their clan. And all these uh, needs to be worked together into uh, a system that actually uh, work in a functional way to be able to establish and sustain peace. And what we propose is a Somali uh, nationalism. I can uh, try to respond to the question about the uh, framing of um, humanitarian and development assistance uh, in a security context. Uh, it has been a problem, and it's a problem now in, in the Horn, uh, but it's been particularly noticeable as well in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, um, where the military mission uh, includes a substantial effort to try to build development activities, you know, the PRTs in the military, uh, which have been widely criticized as uh, poor practice in terms of even development and humanitarian policy, uh, but also uh, endanger the aid workers and also the local partners who are seen by the local population as you know, connected to uh, an, a military intervention. Uh, so I think overall the judgment of many of the groups like yours is that uh, this is uh, counterproductive and harmful uh, to the mission of humanitarian and development assistance. Uh, 
even though the groups do recognize that there's an, an inevitable connection between development assistance and the conditions that give rise to armed conflict, uh, but the development work needs to be supported on its own terms uh, as an imperative, both on a humanitarian sense and social sense, but as also laying the long-term conditions for a more peaceful outcome. Uh, but mixing it with uh, military policy has generally been a, a disaster and uh, undermines actually both parts of it, both the military and the uh, humanitarian effort. Um. I, uh, maybe I can add a few considerations to the colleague from World Vision on uh, blurring the line between humanitarian and stabilization approach. And uh, it's, which is not a response to the question, but one of the, I think, elements that we need to add to this picture is that um, there's a legal framework that makes it really, really difficult to engage and work in uh, Al-Shabaab controlled areas. Al-Shabaab is a blacklisted organization. It's a terrorist organization in US lists, in UN lists, in European lists. And specific individuals within Al-Shabaab are blacklisted in both Al-Qaeda uh, and, and, uh, and, and Somali, Al-Qaeda, Somali sanctions, and another regime of sanctions, actually. I, um, so in 2010, you had also a U.S. Supreme Court decision that essentially extended the interpretation of what constitutes material support to a terrorist organization before it was intended mainly as financial or a direct uh, property transfer. Now it's many things, um, training, um, what, what could be construed as training. To make the long story short, the result of this is that um, most agencies uh, apply self-censorship to their engagement and simply avoid any form of contact. Um, now, if you connect this to the fact that uh, this blacklisted group is present in all this area, either you need to be very creative in terms of describing your work <laughs> or, or you simply avoid working in all, all those green areas. The result of this is that also from the side of Al-Shabaab, humanitarian actors, even if they're not willing to be partial, are perceived as partial. So the example that I said of Ethiopian army enters Bedoa, humanitarian actors follow immediately um, the, the Ethiopian army. Maybe not because they are supportive of the Ethiopian intervention, but simply because they find an opportunity to support the population there. But in terms of how this is politically interpre interpreted in, by the conflict actors, certainly there are consequences. And, De facto, you see a, a, a high degree of self-censorship in, in, in terms of engagement. Okay, maybe one more quick round of questions, and we'll wrap it up here. So in the, in the back. Uh, I'm Chip House from the Alliance for Peace Building. Um, and these are really questions of ignorance aimed at Laura and the ghost of John Paul. Um, I was taken by the fact that the two of you talked a lot about the, po the potential for engagement. Now let's assume that somehow the efforts we're doing in this town to get the Holder decision, if not overturned, at least mucked around enough so that NGOs can participate effectively. What are the kind of concrete steps that could be taken especially in the short run, to break up, that's probably the wrong verb to use, but to weaken the ties between what, David, you had on the 
second arrow you put up, I've gotten what the terms were, but mm -hmm. sympathizers from participants or something right. like that. Because what we know from democratization literature, which isn't very good, but we know that, no one quotes, that if you can break the, up, up the pact between the extremists and moderates within the old coalition, you can make some changes. But again, I'm speaking completely out of ignorance about Somalia. So um, again, Laura, that's really for you and for the ghost of John Paul. Thanks. Hi, uh, Paul Miller, Catholic Relief Services. I also teach occasionally at SICE. Um, a question, uh, Michele, you said there was two moments uh, when some things came together, Al-Shabaab and the ICU, the Islamic Courts Union, and I'm thinking back six years ago, a Washington scene a little bit like this, and people debating the Ethiopian invasion, the Bush policy to support, to go against uh, the Islamic Courts Union. So there's so many problems here, trying to think appreciatively. Was the Islamic Courts Union uh, a success? You called it a thin veneer. Um, but we heard uh, tell that uh, businessmen could do business in Mogadishu. You didn't have to pay bribes. There was relative security. Um, it's hard to say what would have happened had the Ethiopian invasion not occurred or had the Bush policy been different. But tell us more about what seemed to make that work, um, at least in its own terms, the ICU uh, for a little time uh, in 2005, 2006. I'm Mitzi Wirth. I'm with the Naval Postgraduate School. I guess I'm puzzled about how you create a sense of nation if you don't have a charismatic leader that is out there trying to bring it all together. If you have so many disparate groups, unless someone like Nelson Mandela, for example, emerges or a George Washington or whatever, I just, I'm puzzled by how that can happen in today's world. Okay. Responses? Can we take the first one? Well, in terms of the, you know, how to proceed with the uh, engagement uh, policies in the specific context of Somalia, uh, I'm not an expert enough to say, but uh, generally uh, there needs to be uh, a willingness to talk at the most fundamental level, and uh, this is what John Paul's essay and his whole experience and that of a lot of the peace builders in this room and elsewhere have experienced. Uh, the three cups of tea, you know, many cups of tea, and a long-term effort to begin to win trust so that the party who's coming from wherever uh, is recognized as someone who can be uh, trusted and relied upon to be an interlocutor and to help identify issues. It's a long-term process, we know. Um, and then the solutions have to come from the participants. And it's sort of also your question, how do you build a nation? Well, you know, it doesn't necessarily require a charismatic leader. It requires a community to begin to reach consensus on what their future should look like. And that can only come from them uh, through eliciting that process, empowering people to speak out, yes, including the women uh, of the society, the civil society in general. Uh, and I think our consistent message, and many of you have said it as well, that the, the framing that's underway now in terms of the U.S. and international policy, the, the ways in which it's been overly militarized, has 
hinder that kind of necessary gradual um, peace building from below, if you will. Uh, so maybe it's back to Bill Zartman's original idea, you know, if we get out of the way and allow for uh, the society to evolve and create its own future, yeah, it's going to be messy. There is a lot of violence. It's undoubtedly going to continue in some respects, but hopefully uh, through uh, a peace-building process, there can be enough community that uh, political solutions can be found from the, the indigenous communities from the bottom up. I can try to answer to Paul's um, question. The, a lot of the people that I've talked with when they refer to the experience with the Islamic Court Union in Mogadishu and other areas of Somalia, uh, it's certainly a mixed picture, but there are positive aspects emerging. One of the things is that um, it was an authority that, in the eyes of local population, was able to um, produce stability and security. And um, that was also demonstrated by the fact that you saw um, a huge amount of people from the diaspora coming back and reinvesting their money. In fact, one of the things that we say, Life and Peace Center, with our partners in Somalia, is that we will all be surprised on Monday. Because if you, if you look at the, the way the, the Somali people have spread around the world and they developed networks and businesses, and how many of them are still part of the generation that wants to return back, um, it will be enough to have a certain degree of security and stability for most of the, these people to come back with huge liquidity and capital and willing to invest, while at the same time benefiting of business networks in the United States, in Europe, in Nordic countries, and, um, and in other African countries. Um, one of the ways that people understand that the, the ICU simplifying is that it was a less radical framework, meaning it was an Islamist framework with some Sal Salafi, Wahhabi um, element of identity, but more focused on national um, uh, concerns rather than on global jihad and, and these um, kind of things. Um, and certainly, if you look at the individuals that were involved there, that were in decision-making capacity, they were most, mostly people with strong nationalist um, concerns. We have to remember that it was because of external pressure that they were essentially destroyed and that they um, dissolved in the population, rather than because of national. So this shows that um, there is a certain degree of possibility um, within Somalis to unite on a common political project, whether it is Islamist or, or, or something else. We still think that an, um, an Islamic um, framework can probably develop this thin layer of cohesion. The problem is that um, if you look at the, some of the people that were with the Islamic Court Union then became Hezbollah Islamia, which was an oppositional framework against the Djibouti government, essentially, the government created in Djibouti. When these people moved from opposing to asserting what they are for, okay, we have understood what you're against. You're against this government, you're against Djibouti, you're against, what are you for? They have resorted to declare a platform that was essentially very, very consistent to that of Al-Shabaab, uh, in very, very um, extremist, um, radical terms in, in, in some way. In, in any case, we think that as, as David said, that there's a value in talking here because we see that there's, there are ideological frameworks on different sides and, uh, and there's a process of further polarization and we just, we just don't talk to each other. 
And by not talking to each other, we assume, we speculate, we base our, our own policies on rumors or on a few friendly voices that we have around us, essentially, that tell a version of the story that we might like more. But I think that this capacity to work with things that we are unfamiliar with, that in our own judgment maybe are not even constructive or we don't like, but still to be able to work with and talk, we see that that's, that that's probably the most important thing that we can do today. And I think that returning back to this map, if you look at all this green area, that's an authority that is relatively stable over territory. I think that there's a need for a political process to, in terms of understanding how we can work with that. I know it's provocative, but... So how to create uh, a sense of uh, nationalism? particularly in a country that has been in conflict for the last like 21 years, and a government that uh, has been in transition almost perpetually, and just confined to, to one region. That, that is a challenge. And can we have a Mandela in Somalia? Um, in the current situation, that's, that's a big question. Because even the, the leaders uh, who appointed to the transitional fed, uh, federal government are not, uh, some of them are not people who are uh, based in Somalia, are from outside. So having such people in a government and expecting the people to actually embrace them and legitimize the state uh, structures is a challenge. But if we want to start from a state-building uh, state, uh, approach is having um, inclusive and participatory processes that is driven by Somalis themselves, as opposed to uh, imposition of people from, from outside. That way, even after the chaos that has been there and uh, all that has been going on in Somalia, there is a possibility, they still hope that nationalism has the capacity to actually bring all these competing identities uh, together. Yeah. Um, maybe just a little bit to add, uh, not to just restate, but um, in answer to your question about concrete steps, um, maybe a little short on particulars of concreteness, but I think uh, in reference to, to uh, the, the efforts to try to modify in some way um, the ability of, of organizations to engage with the, the uh, groups on the terrorist list that you mentioned. Um, I think that effective peace building requires um, knowledge of how the parties to a conflict understand their roles in the conflict um, and how they envision peace and a lack of understanding can lead to misguided focus on where resources are directed um, and what kinds of methods of engagement are pursued. Um, and so enabling um, I think eliminating barriers to, to at least uh, some sort of engagement with uh, particular groups that are isolated uh, as of now would help to enable a better assessment of, um, just as a first step um, for, for policy changes, uh, better assessment of the role uh, in Somali perceptions of al-Shabaab, um, identifying civil society partners, um, and then supporting supporting appropriate peace building and reconciliation initiatives. Um, so just even being able to to understand um, where folks are coming from, I think is a big step. Okay, 
Well, thank you. We'll bring this CPRF to a close. And thanks especially to 3P Security for helping to pull this together. And let's give a little hand for our panel from Life and Peace Institute.